Father, it is a wonderful privilege to just come before you. I'm going to thank you for giving us you know, bodies that can bring you glory through our voices and through our hearts and our minds and just our entire being. You have blessed us, and I hope that in one sense we can bless you. I pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of the, the Lord, that our daily conduct would bring a smile to your face. Now prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning as we open our Bibles. And I'll trust that you'll speak to us because it's more important that people hear from you than they hear my voice. So may it be your voice this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take a seat if you would. I'm going to uh, have David play a, a portion of a chorus of a song. Um, and when you know the name of the song, if you don't know the name of the song, um, just kind of nod your head, okay? So David, you go and just play that chorus real quick. There we go. There we go. Okay. We're old, okay, because most of the hands were raised. Can anyone tell me, a little music trivia, what year this song came out? Nineteen eighty, is that you said? Nineteen eighty six. Nineteen eighty six. Okay. Um, of course who is the uh, musician singing the song? Huey Lewis and the News, okay? It spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. I remember that. Um, my friend, um, it was the single, this single was the band's second number one hit. What was the band's first number one hit the year before in 1985? Now, you should know this. Power of Love from what movie? Back to the Future. Remember that? Who's seen the movie Back to the Future? At the movie theater, yeah, at the movie theater, yeah. Or you've seen it. It's, such, it's kind of one of those iconic movies, okay? The Power of Love, 1985. Uh, the second single, of course, was Happy to, or to Be Stuck With You. Now, when I first heard this song, I was with my friend, where well, it came out, and I was 17 years old. And my friend Jeff Paquette and I were a little confused, and he remember asking me, why would he sing Happy to be Stuck with You? It seemed like an oxymoron, didn't make sense. And I mean, who would be happy to be stuck with someone in marriage, particularly? Because I thought, you know, I'm so naive, you know, at the time, as a 17-year-old, a wise 17-year-old, I'll say that, that marriage is supposed to be about, you know, two people that just spend their lives together in marital bliss, and they live happily ever after, okay? Yeah. The reality is, 
that reality tells us a different story about marriage. And we've been talking about family and marriage. And um, just consider this. These are the, um, the latest statistics on marriage and, for example, in divorce. A divorce takes place in the United States every 13 seconds. Did you know that? That is the latest uh, data as of 2020. If you go by this, that means that there are 1,385 divorces that occur in the time it takes to finish a wedding reception. And divorces in the United States alone account for over 36% of the total marriages, which amounts to about just over 2.1 million. Now, we think that, of course, when you, you get divorced for whatever reason, that the grass is always greener on the other side. And let me tell you, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Uh, first marriages between 42 and 45%, so almost half, terminate with the div- divorce. So grass is greener on the other side, right? I'll get married a second time. 60% of second marriages uh, terminate with a divorce. Well, I'll get married a third time. 73% will terminate with a divorce. Now, if you think about it, maybe, just maybe, and I'm going to just a shot in the dark here, that maybe you're the problem, <laughs> right? Because you're going, well, it's not me, right? It's, it's, it's you, and you hear it all the time, so there you get married again. Then it happens again, Boy, it's not me, it's you, and it happened a third time. Maybe it is you. <laughs> Maybe you are the reason for the divorce. Because obviously there's a lack of humility. It's always a character issue, and, and there's something going on here. And maybe you don't understand what it, it means to be married. So, okay, I, I not happily married. We get a divorce. I get a second marriage and divorce, then a third marriage and divorce. Well, tell you what I'll do. I'll switch teams. Same-sex divorce statistics. Do you know what the median duration of marriages of of same-sex couples is? 4.1 years for females and 4.3 years for male couples. They're not staying together either. Now, last week, we discussed the marriage and the family. This morning, obviously, we're going to look at what I call the dark side of marriage, uh, the ending of a marriage and a divorce. Um, if, you know, there's a lot of things in the Bible that we don't understand and that you just have to take the time to research and study, but there's a lot of confusion about what the Bible actually says about divorce. So I want to kind of hopefully once for all put the, this confusion to rest in this two-part sermon series. This morning we'll look at what the Old Testament says about divorce. Um, so if you can get your Bibles out, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2. Did I put this up here? Yes, I did. Or you can look up here on the screen. Genesis 2, 23 and 24. And what we're going to find here is that the permanence, oneness of a man and a woman. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
If you're going to understand God's view of divorce, you have to first understand God's view of marriage. So God brought together the first man and woman in a monogamous, lifelong marriage between a male and a female. The words hold fast carries the idea of being glued to something and thus reveal the nature of the marriage bond as God intended to be. And here we go. It's two people stuck together, happy to be stuck with you, right? They're stuck together and become one flesh in a permanent oneness. Now, clearly, we are not happy to be stuck with our spouses given the divorce statistics that I just mentioned. But when you understand the marriage bond as God intended it to be, again, two people stuck together. I think I'm getting the idea here of what you remember about marriage. You're stuck with you. You're stuck together, okay? A permanent oneness. You begin to see why God has such strong feelings about divorce that he actually uses this word to describe it. Hate. Malachi 2.16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. I don't think I put that up there, did I? No. But if God's intention is that a man and a woman remain together in a lifelong monogamous marriage, we have to ask ourselves, why is there then divorce, right? Because Jesus was asked this very question by the Pharisees. In Matthew 19, 7 to 8, and just listen to this, the Pharisees come to Jesus and said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And do you remember what Jesus' response was? Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So, why divorce? Well, after the fall of man in Genesis 3, God announces curses to the man, the woman, and the serpent. Remember that? In those curses, there were several elements uh, involving relationships, namely that man suffers from a separated relationship with God, but also a separated relationship now exists between man and nature. The ground doesn't produce like it would. And a separated relationship now exists between a man and his wife. How was it cursed? Remember this, Genesis 3.16? Notice that in a lot of these sermons lately, I'm going back to the very beginning. There's so much here that we must understand. God said this, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. The key is here. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What does that mean? Your desire should be for your husband, he shall rule over you. You should know this by now. Basically, it means in one sense that the woman desires to control or to rule the man. Because at the fall, Eve's sin was what? She took over the leadership of the relationship, and that has become the sinful tendency of every woman since her fateful decision. That's not your role. In Adam's sin, what did he do? Well, he abandoned his leadership. And every man has to struggle to maintain leadership for the rest of the time that man lives on earth. And in that one statement in Genesis 3.16, we have the basic problem in marriage. 
God's original design was a permanent union between a husband and a wife through all of life. But when sin entered the human race, it resulted in in a terrible conflict in marriage, and that marriage ideal was just shattered. Chaos entered the home, and divorce inevitably became the result. And so from Genesis 3.16, you have basically the battle of the sexes. So in summary, we have women seeking the throne, men trying to stay on the throne, and marriage turns out to be one big struggle for control of the throne. Marriage has become a sort of Game of Thrones. Now Moses understood this. Understood that divorce is a reality because of the hardness of man's heart which stems from the curse. But again, it was not that way from the beginning. It's just a symptom of man's sinful, hardened heart. Now, turn your Bibles. I don't think I put this up here, did I? No, to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Take a while to get there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay? So this is why Moses wrote this. Again, God is giving laws to regulate his people. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house... And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then let her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now you may recall that what else is an abomination to the Lord? From about a couple months ago. Transgenderism. Cross-dressing, right? That's an abomination. Same word. Same word. This verse was misinterpreted by the Jews. And this is what they did. They reasoned that all that had to be done was to hand the document to the woman in the presence of two witnesses, and she stood divorced. However, as far as God was concerned, such a writing of divorcement was only legitimate in one case, and that was the case of adultery. Now, if you go to Matthew 5.32, read these words from Jesus. I don't think I put those up here, did I? No. But I say to you, remember this, that everyone who divorces his wife except for what? The ground of sexual morality or adultery makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, these words explain what we're seeing in Deuteronomy 24. And what Jesus is trying to do is to stop the additional sin of adultery to the original sin of a wrongful divorce. So these men were divorcing their wives for unbiblical reasons. These wives were then remarrying, and what was that woman doing? 
committing adultery. So you had this proliferation of adultery going on all the time. The Old Testament teaches that marriage illustrates God's relationship with his people Israel. Israel, he is the faithful husband, and Israel is his wife. Now we find this in Jeremiah 3, and this we discover that even though God will allow divorce as a technicality, in the case of adultery only, divorce is not necessary because a greater way to approach it would be to love and forgive and restore the marriage relationship. Now in Jeremiah, Israel has continually been unfaithful to God for years. And they worshiped other false idols. So three times God calls her back. Just look at these verses real quick. He says, return faith to Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. So Israel has turned to other gods. They've committed spiritual adultery. God does not write them a certificate of divorce. Again, return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. So I'm not going to not only divorce you, I want you to come back and I am going to be your husband again. I will bless you. Return, faithless people. I will cure you of backsliding. Again, what is God's design for marriage? A monogamous, lifelong, permanent oneness between a man and a woman. Marriage, then, is a living illustration of how two people are joined together in an unbreakable union with the living God. Do you understand that? Now, folks, this means this, and I want everybody to listen to me in this. It may be revolutionary for you to hear this. This means that marriage was never designed by God to establish or promote human happiness. We get married because we want to be what? Happy, right? Marriage was always designed to point people back to God. See, and bring him glory. That's the purpose of marriage. And if you've been married for any amount of time, you're going to know happiness goes away pretty quickly in a marriage. Then what are you left with? Well, if I'm not happy, what do we do? We divorce. It's not about your happiness. It never was designed to be about your happiness. There should be happiness, for sure, but that's fleeting. Your marriage is always meant to point back to God, of the permanent oneness between God and his people. That's what it means to be light in a a dark world. Okay? Now, the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at this, Hosea. So turn in your Bible to Hosea. I will give a prize to the first person who gets there. Go to the middle of the Bible and make a right. So get to Psalms and make a right. Okay? If you're there, raise your hand. God bless you. Actually, phone or actual Bible? Actual Bible? There we go. All right, you're there. Good, good, good. My mother-in-law is still going there, so let's make fun of her. <laughs> right there, slow, old, and what, you got there? You're there? You did? Good for you. Good for you. God does miracles. Yes. 
Without tabs, too. Isaiah 1.1, the word of the Lord which came to Isaiah the son of Barry during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Why is that there? Let me give you some context. The Lord appeared to Hosea, who was a prophet. His purpose was that Hosea's prophecies, they weren't just to be verbal, okay, or even something just written down. They were supposed to be a visual illustration, a dramatization in one sense, a, an a play. Hosea is going to enact in his life a drama to illustrate a great spiritual truth. God calls Hosea to marry a woman by the name of Gomer. Right then and there I'd say to God, are you sure? Gomer? Really? I can name a dog Gomer, but a wife? Okay. All right. Marry a woman by the name of Gomer. And having married her, he discovers that she had become a prostitute or a harlot. Let that sink in for a moment. I'd have to be called by God to marry a woman named Gomer, and then she becomes a prostitute or harlot to know that I made the right decision. Now, in spite of that, he was to be faithful to his marriage vow. Now, here's the key. No matter what the pain, no matter what the unfaithfulness, no matter what the price, he has to be faithful to his unfaithful prostitute wife. Well, why? Because this was to be an illustration to demonstrate how faithful God would be to his wayward wife, Israel. You with me so far? In doing so, we find God setting the standard of relationship in a marriage as it is the image of God's relationship to his people. This is the standard, folks. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Moses, or through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry. The land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So God had joined himself to Israel as a husband, and taken Israel to be his wife. And by God's design for marriage, this permanent relationship with, it's a permanent relationship. And Hosea was to illustrate the fact that Israel had become a prostitute, committing spiritual adultery with false gods. And as we find out, the heart of the story is that Hosea was to be faithful and forgiving, no matter what his unfaithful wife did. Okay? And so in marriage, when your husband or your wife does something that is annoying or offends you, Get over it. Have they ever been as unfaithful as Gomer or as Israel? It reveals the shocking limit of your forgiveness. Verse 3 and 4. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, Dibium, And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now Jezreel, this is where it's key to study this, it means scattered. God was about to scatter Israel for her spiritual 
adultery. But why? In Deuteronomy, it said what? If you follow after other gods, you broke into covenant, the curse has come upon you, and it's very specifically laid out. I will put you what? Into captivity under, under other nations. Look at verse 6. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. The Lord said to him, Name her Loruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. Loruhamah means not pitied. God would no longer have a pity or compassion upon Israel. That is not a good place to be with God. When the Lord had... Verse 8 and 9, when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Now, Lo-Ami means not my people. I want you to see what God is doing here, folks. Jezreel means scattered, Lo-Ruhamah means not pitied, and Lo-Ami means not my people. He is saying, turn your back on that harlot wife in children of harlotry. If this were you or I, would you not feel the same way? Would you not feel that you have every right to divorce your adulterous wife? I don't need this pain in my life. You broke a promise. And it certainly looks like God is going to turn his back on his people. Look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 4. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. Again, Hosea has every right to end his marriage to Gomer. And God had every right to end his marriage to Israel. But look at verses 2 and 3 of Hosea, chapter 2. Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. In other words, Israel had better repent of her ways or this marriage relationship is over. Look at verse 5. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil, and my drink. Look at that verse again closely. You see what this verse is saying. Gomer's adulteries, her adulteries, Israel's adulteries, this was not some one-night stand. It's a lifestyle of sexual immorality. She was a prostitute for hire. A married woman, but a prostitute for hire. It was a business. Look at verse 6. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I'll build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. In other words, Hosea is saying this, I'm going to go after her. Verse 7. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. In other words, Hosea is going to intervene and make her life so difficult that she won't be able to prostitute herself. She'll have to come back to Hosea. 
Verse 8. For she does not know that it was, and this is incredible. She does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. What was Hosea doing? He was actually following Gomer around, his unfaithful wife, in her harlotry, paying her bills. He was actually the one funding her prostitution business in order to stay connected with her. Verse 10 and 12. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, and her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest. The beasts of the field will devour them. So as you read through Hosea chapters 1 through 3, you discover these mixed feelings. On one hand, it's this. I'm going to make it so hard and so miserable that you will turn from your ways. But on the other hand, I have a responsibility, and I'm going to keep staying alongside and making sure her needs are met. So we find a husband who is disciplining and judging all the while he's supporting his unfaithful wife so that she stays alive. It's like a, a parent having to love a, you love a child, but you have to discipline that child for the sake of the, the child learning. That's hard, isn't it, as a parent to do that? This is similar to what Hosea is doing with Gomer. And this is exactly, you see this in God's relation to Israel. God, on the one hand, is judging and chastening and dealing with Israel. On the other hand, he's the very life of the nation. And so Hosea is just kind of working through these mixed feelings of a wife who is a prostitute, and he wants her so much for her to be judged and condemned so she'll return. Yet he goes alongside her to make sure her needs are met because of what? The vow that he has to her as a husband. It's a serious thing when you enter into a marriage covenant, which is why we make vows. It's incredible commitment. Look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 2. And the earth will respond to the grain and to the new wine and the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her. And who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. In other words, God is going to restore Israel. The faithful husband, God, will take back the unfaithful wife, Israel. Jezreel, instead of scattered, is applied to what? A sowing field, and it means God sows. Lurahama is changed to Ruhama which means pity. Well, Ami is changed to Ami, which means my people. And the one who was not my people became my people. The one who was not pitied is pitied. The one who was scattered is sown and shall grow. Why in the world would God do this? What's the answer? It's very simple. God made promise, a marriage vow. 
God is a God who keeps his word. And the point is God's unchanging love for Israel. It's based on a permanent promise he made, which is ultimately based upon what? His character. A promise is really only as good as a person's character behind that promise, right? So even though Israel becomes a harlot, God said, I'll bring her back. I'll bring her back. Even though she bore children of harlotry, God said, I'll change their names. I'll bless them. And so it was that Hosea was to live the illustration of an adulterous wife to be brought back to a place of blessing. Folks, is this not a perfect picture of Christian marriage? Since marriage is a symbol of God's relationship to his people, and obviously so in Hosea, it's an appropriate symbol of how you deal with a wayward partner. In our society, it's what? Strike one, and you're out. It was that way among the Israelites, or the Pharisees, and the scribes. But is that the way God treated Israel? No. Despite her spiritual adultery, remember this? The words of Jesus? Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I want to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. The heart of God to bring his people continually to him. Let me ask you this. Have you ever failed God? Have you ever, has he ever turned you away? Have you ever committed spiritual adultery against the one who is your spiritual husband? And has he ever turned you away? Well, never. Don't you see this is how a Christian marriage partner is to respond? No matter what the sin, no matter what the problem, the immediate reaction should be forgiveness. Don't hold on to it for one moment. Because if you do, number one, you open yourself up to be in the trap of offense. And number two, you will just increase the odds of a hardened heart. So here's Hosea coming along behind his harlot wife, paying her bills. And I bet the people who knew Hosea and was, were watching this thought he'd lost his mind. This isn't love, they would reason. This is desperation. But Hosea is saying to us what God is saying to Israel. This is how I love you. You can run away from me, but you'll never run out of my love. In fact, I'll even pay your bills along the way while I'm disciplining you. So Hosea kept on loving Gomer with a steadfast love, and finally she reached the bottom. Gomer was so corrupt and depraved that she wound up for sale on the block of the slave market. Turn to Hosea chapter three, verse one. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. 
Right there, you know something wrong with Israel that they love raisin cakes. Who likes raisins? They have it like a, the, the thing you really, really love. Chocolate, I get that. Raisin cakes, I don't know about that. And I'm not an anti-raisin guy either. It's just like, <laughs> I love raisin cakes. Nope. Hosea, go love Gomer, your prostitute wife, again, just like I loved Israel in the midst of her spiritual adultery. The constant love, steadfast love, unchanging love. And it's exactly what Hosea did. He went out to the slave block, and there he saw Gomer, his wife, for sale. Pause a moment and, and ponder on that. You're married to a wife who is now a prostitute, and now they're up for sale. Here was the mother of his three children, the one who played the harlot and broken his heart again and again, and the one whom he loved, and he followed through all of her adulteries and even paid her bills, and now she stands there for sale. And history tells us something about the slave market in those days. Almost half the population was in some form of slavery. And barely a day would ever go by that there wasn't an auction of slaves in a city. They were sold openly in the marketplace along with all other commodities. People were being sold. Isaiah goes down to buy back his wayward wife. And the scene must have been something like this because history tells us that Hosea walks into the market and standing on the block is a woman. Not only is her veil removed, which of course was shameful enough in and of itself, an embarrassment, but she was probably naked so she could be personally examined by anybody who wanted to buy her. She's a degenerate woman marked by gross sexual immorality. It's his wife whom he loves and the mother of his children. Now, if ever a man has a right to divorce, Hosea does. He had options. He could buy her back and do what? According to law, he could stone her. Claiming the Old Testament law. The problem is that she is a woman of his heart. And the bidding begins for this woman... And he bids along with everybody else for his own wife. Verse 2. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Now that would have been a lot of money to pay for any person, but this just wasn't any person, folks. This was the wife whom he dearly loved. And he buys her back. And now watch what happens next. Verse 3, then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a woman, so I also will be toward you. What? How can anybody be so forgiving of such an immoral, untrustworthy person? Look closely. Hosea is not just forgiving her, you see that? But he's also what? He is loving her. doesn't just bring her back and sticks it out with her because of God's command. He loves her. He provides for her. But folks, there's more here than just a man and a woman. There's God in Israel. God loves and provides for his people. And we are his people now. We're Israel. This is how God treats you. He treats us. God loves and provides for his people. And God wants us to see through this visual illustration the marriage covenant. That when two people marry, they make a promise to each other before God to keep those promises. 
You have no more right based on your promises to divorce your spouse than God has to turn you loose when you offend him. If that was the case, he wouldn't be my God. I am far too offensive for him. I'm far too offensive for my wife. And so are you to your spouse. God keeps his promise. I mean, you have no more right based on your promise to divorce your spouse than God has to turn you loose when you offend him. God keeps his promise. How about in your marriage? Do you now see that if you even have a thought of divorce, you've just missed the whole point of marriage? You've missed the whole point. Hosea could have killed Gomer and everybody would have said he's exonerated. At the very least, he could have divorced her. And he certainly didn't have to pay 15 pieces of silver to buy her back. But he was an illustration of God and man and the promises of salvation. Amen. God makes no promises that he breaks. And we are to make no promises that we break. And that is why God hates divorce. Because divorce breaks a promise. And then it breaks the illustration of marriage pointing toward God and his people. And if you just listen to this, Hosea 14.4, a picture of God's love for his people. Near the end of Hosea, this is the same love that is to be lived out in every Christian marriage. Here's what it says. I will heal, heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. Hosea 14.4. Now, you know what that means? God's able to take you back and love you as if it never happened. As if you've always been faithful, even though you were unfaithful. When you can love your spouse like that, even when they treat you like Gomer treated Hosea, as if it never happened, then you understand the purpose of marriage. God loved Israel so much. Hosea loved Gomer so much. They are faithful to the end. They keep on loving us when we're unlovable. See, and that's God's standard. So God has spoken clearly to his people through Hosea in the Old Testament on the issues of marriage and divorce. And so... What I want you to do this week as we end this sermon and get ready to close the song is just to reread Hosea chapters 1 through 3 and see the character of God as you read through these three chapters. And then take it deeper and think of how unfaithful, and it won't be difficult, you've been to God. How many times you've sinned, how many times you've grieved the Holy Spirit with your sin, and yet God is always there. Just confess your sin, come to me. I'm faithful and just. I will forgive you of your sin. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because why? I love you with a steadfast love. And that, in a nutshell, in about 40 minutes, is what the Old Testament says about divorce. Next week, we'll look at what the New Testament says about divorce. Amen? Please stand with me as I pray, and we will close with a song.
Lord, I am so grateful that you have made it so clear in your word to us, in the pages of scripture, that there is nothing that we can do that can ever make you break a promise. You are a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God. And that you love us with a steadfast love that is never changing. It is unconditional. And I thank you that you have provided with us resources, in particular the Holy Spirit, that enables us to love, believe it or not, like you love. And we know that we must be filled or empowered with the Spirit to live out the difficult relationships in life because of the curse caused by Eve and then Adam at the fall in the garden. And so when we learn to be sensitive to the Spirit, drawing upon the resources of God to have the power to love our spouses the way that you call us to love, to be quick to forgive, to be slow to anger, and to not talk while the TV's on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How to get that one in there? Let's sing. Let's close with the song. Amen.